Okay, this is Gary Parrish from CBSSports.com again. It's now Friday, February 13th. Oh, my God, it's Friday the 13th. Are you guys okay? Did you, did you get bothered by Friday the 13th? I really just realized this. <laughs> I'm not... I'm not bothered by it. I'm not superstitious in that way, but uh, it is actually kind of creepy that you mention that. And it's essentially been a week of death. Um, so some uh, some of some yeah. of which some of which you predicted. Let's be honest. Oh my <laughs> gosh! I you know to the podcast listeners, I didn't mean to creep you out like that. I am not sentient to that degree, but I got to tell you, I I probably had forty at mentions at me. Um, Basically, you know, calling me some some sort of grim reaper, begging me not to kill their coach next. Uh, so there will be no death pool predictions on this podcast. Thank God, thank God. Just for for folks Jeez. who might not have caught it, we were we did the uh, Monday podcast and we were uh, reflecting on on Dean Smith, the life of Dean Smith, the death of Dean Smith, and one of the points Norlander made. By the way, it's Matt Norlander and Sam Bassini here with me. Uh, one of the points Norlander made is that. You know, we're fortunate enough to still have a lot of the giants of college basketball still living, whether it's, um, you know, Coach K or um, Larry Brown, uh, Jim Beheim, Rick Patino, Lute Olson. And Norlander actually said, you know, the next one to go will be Tarkanian. But then after that, and so we, would, we sort of joked about it. And then, like, literally the next day, uh, or maybe that same day, Tark was admitted to the hospital. And, of course, uh, Jerry Tarkanian died earlier this week. So it's um, certainly not a funny moment, but just sort of a weird moment. And we were giving it to, to Norlander a little bit about predicting deaths <laughs> on Monday. So no, d- listen, whatever you do, please don't predict any do- doom for any <laughs> basketball or any coach or any person, really. Just stay away from death if you can. Yeah, no, let's, uh, let's, let's not go into a dark place here. But that was, uh, yeah. And actually, the timing on Tarkanian's death... Um, I mean, I think it happened as you were recording with Doster on Wednesday, so I don't even know right. if you addressed that. But, any, you know, we don't have to get no, too No, no, you're right. I, I noticed that. I recorded with Rob Doster from NBC Sports uh, Wednesday. I was in New York, and, like, I think you're exactly right. I, I think Tark pa- – he certainly passed between the time that we recorded and the time the podcast got posted. Yeah. Um, he, he certainly um, died, or at least it was it was announced at some point in between there, perhaps literally while I was recording. And so it is worth taking a few moments just to sort of reflect on Tark. I, I will tell you, I, um, I I didn't know him well because he was retired by the time I got this job, and he, you know, and but I I was around him some, you know, at Final Fours, and you know, set it. I remember being in a hotel lobby once and sitting at a table having a drink with. Tark and some other folks, and a few years ago, uh, and this was probably the last long conversation I had with him. Um, I I was doing a Q and A actually for Athlon Magazine, and uh, they wanted something with Tark. This was like two thousand late two thousand eleven maybe, and so I I remember talking to him on a Sunday afternoon, and it was like one of those things where I, I it was like okay you call call on Sunday afternoon and we'll catch up then, so. I call on a Sunday afternoon. I had family stuff to do, so, but I'm and I can remember even telling my wife, "All right, listen, I got to go make a phone call, and um, and and then as soon as I, you know, I'll knock this out, and uh, and then we'll go to dinner." And I don't mean this the wrong way. I, I'm just telling a story. I couldn't get him off the phone. He would not stop talking, and he was so bitter about the NCAA. We were talking a lot about the NCAA and how they treated him. And he just wouldn't, st- and I, I'm not saying wouldn't, st- like I loved it. It was awesome. He just, I had Jerry Tarkanian just going. And if you've read anything over the past 48 hours about Tark, 
He's a great storyteller. He, first off, he's got amazing stories, and then and then he's great at telling them. Like some people have amazing stories, but they can't tell them. Somebody can re- some people can really tell stories, but they don't have any good ones. Like this guy had amazing stories and he could really tell them. And so I had him on a roll, and or he just had himself on a roll, and he was so. But but I I sort of hung up the phone feeling a little sad. Because here was a man whose, whose health was clearly failing him, or at least heading in that direction. He had been sick for a while and um, had so much resentment built up, clearly. I'm not a psychologist, but there was a lot of stuff going on there, is what I remember from the conversation. And so I talked to Dave Rice, um, who, of course, played, with, played for Tark at UNLV, now is the head coach at UNLV, on Wednesday night, so a few hours after Tark died. And one of the things I asked him was like, with the Hall of Fame induction that came in 2013 and the statue at UNLV, I, I was curious if Tark had found any sort of peace with all of that stuff. Because, you know, when I talked to him at the age of, say, 81 or 82 at length on that Sunday afternoon, this was a man who had accomplished so much, like was one of the iconic figures of college basketball, but had never really been properly recognized that way. He was a guy who was still like the outlaw and all that. But, right. but there was no Hall of Fame. There was no statue. And yet, thank God, he got all that stuff late in life. Stuff that, let's be clear, he absolutely deserved, given his impact on the sport, regardless of what you thought of him. And Dave actually said... He thought Tark found a lot of peace late in life because he did feel like, though it took too long, he was finally properly recognized by the by the establishments at both you know in basketball and specifically at UNLV. And you know I, I thought that was a neat thing, and and it's really been a fun week. Not and I don't let me explain. I know I know what you're saying. <laughs> We've got to sort of relive a lot of stories about Dean Smith and Jerry and Jerry Tarkanian that I don't think people either A knew or B remembered. <clears throat> and and it's never fun when an iconic figure or you know or someone like somebody's dad dies. But the idea that we've spent some time this week talking about two giants of the sport and being able to at least in from my position learn actually learn more about them but then tell some other tell stories about them that maybe other people didn't know. That's been a, a neat thing to experience over, you know, the past six, seven days or so. It has. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, the timing was, well, one, they're both in better places now. I mean, by all accounts, Smith and Tarkanian, both over the past three or four years, sure. just, their health was just absolutely declining at a rapid rate. Um, for them to have died so close to each other, it really has allowed us to, not necessarily compare the men, but to, to show, one, that there are no coaches around today who are similar in style and personality and stature as, uh, as what Dean was and as what Tark was. And particularly with Tark, since we talked plenty about Dean on the Monday podcast, you know, I wish there was a coach that was so... <laughs> I mean, that was just so willing to be a thorn on the rose um, for the NCAA. There isn't someone like that today. Um, and there isn't a coach like Tark willing to just, like, in some ways Calipari, I guess, is close. But really, with the way that Tark, like, think about those UNLV teams. Um, and Paris, you wrote about this in your column, and we very much have this in common in that. Those UNLV teams are really some of our earliest memories of both college basketball and really beginning to love the sport sure. with what those guys did. Um, 
Uh, but okay, so Kentucky, like UNLV, was the most polarizing team of that era. Okay, and Kentucky is the most polarizing team of this era. Well, the difference is you almost watch Kentucky, and I say you as a, a as a general sports population watch Kentucky because maybe there's some sort of animosity for Calipari, um, a, a general interest if they're going to go undefeated. You watched UNLV because. They were just a bunch of bad dudes that scored 110 points, and would if they were beating you by 25, they wanted to beat you by 35. Like Tark ran a program, yes, it was naturally rebellious in a lot of ways, but it was also super, super fun. And Dan Wetzel hit on this in his column. You know, he was a character in a sport that tends to breed coaches that are just too conservative, too PC savvy. And Tark, in many ways, was a breath of fresh air. And I do wish we had – I mean, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of good guys in college basketball. Sure. And there are a few you know, interesting cats here and there. But there just isn't anyone like Tark. There no. never will be. But, and I wish we even had just a handful of guys that were willing to, to speak out more. Um, and the amazing thing about Tark is he's got you know, a little bit of this tarnish on him in terms of having run from the NCAA and whatever. But everyone that covered him – respected him for how honest and forthcoming he was with who he was, who his program was. And just to circle back to what you were saying, GP, you know, he definitely wanted to have those, you know, that recognition late in life because he wanted so desperately to be seen as an equal to a lot of those coaches he coached against. And I think he was, but it just, it came so late because he was willing to say, listen, this is how a lot of guys are doing it, but you know, I'm willing to tell you how we do it and it's not going to always be pretty, but I'm not going to be phony about it. And I think now we appreciate that more about Tark than maybe his contemporaries did in the 70s. I want to get back to this in just a second. I want to bring Sam in really quickly. I, just to, uh, Tark's main message, I think, when it came to all that kind of NCAA stuff was, okay, maybe I am that guy. But so is the guy I'm competing with. And so is the guy you think's great. And so is the guy you never, you, you can't imagine ever going outside of the lines. Like, I ain't by myself. Why am I... Why am I the only one on that poster when more guys are at our level are like me than not? That was his message um, more than anything else. And I, I think it was a completely fair message um, to, to, you know, I think it was a, a, a fair point to make. His famous quote, nine out of ten schools are cheating and the other one's in last place. That was his, that was his, his basic point always. Fine, I'm the bad guy. But there's a lot of bad guys. I ain't the only one. Sam, you don't. You're too young to remember any of this, aren't you? Um, yeah, pretty much. I went back on Wednesday and watched a few like found like UNLV games online that I could like watch and really, really try and remember what Tarkanium was doing. Just because, yeah, I was too young. I was what I was two or three whenever those UNLV teams were dominant. And uh, the one that lost to Duke, I want to say I was two. So yeah, like I, I was too good young for you, to really, by the way. <laughs> I'm really too young to really like uh, remember them generally, but I went back and watched a few of them, and yeah, they were fantastic basketball. They were that, that team ran, and they tried to score on you every possession. And they tried to just dominate you, and God, I wish there was a team like that. Oh yeah, right now, like yeah. in the worst way, I wish there was a team like that. Um, but I will say this: like, I wonder if Tarkanian, as far as his 
ideas on the NCAA just came an era too early. Like, if he was around now, like, I, I wonder what we would think of him within the context of the O'Bannon case and in the within the context He would be of, celebrated because the yeah. stuff he said then is the stuff Jay Billis tweets now. Absolutely, Great yeah. point. You're absolutely so, right. Yeah, like, it just kind of sucks for him that he never really got that recognition whenever he was around guys like Dean Smith that were like flawless as far as their media perception and other guys of that stature, whenever now like it would be, he'd be a perfect fit and he'd be exactly what we need in the NCAA. And just a real quick note on, you know, we can wrap this up if you want to move on, but Dean Smith was decades ahead in terms of his analysis of basketball on a per possession basis, like ridiculously ahead in the fifties, four decades ahead. And Tarkanian was a solid three decades ahead this whole thing started with him in the NCAA because he wrote like guest columns for his local newspaper right. that kind of essentially bashed the NCAA and that got them onto his trail and they never really got off of it. But the things he was saying really weren't even remotely addressed in terms of media, let alone coaches, until the early 2000s. So both pioneers in that kind of way. Um, I do want to touch on a couple of different things. So Wednesday night, um, again, after Tark had died, I was in studio uh, – CBS Sports Network with Allah Abdulnabi. And Allah, who's a great guy, like he's just the best, um, he was on the Duke team that lost by 30 to UNLV in the 1990 championship game. And I, I thought it was interesting because this was before Shashevsky uh, had a title, right? They won the next year. But, you know, Shashevsky's still, you know, a relatively unaccomplished coach. Uh, not really. He'd gone, I think, to three Final Four. So, uh, but he had not. He, they hadn't broken through yet. Is that right, Norlander? Yeah, that's right. Okay. He was actually, you know, in some ways, he was uh, he was like an early Dean Smith, and that right. he had made a a bunch. He might have been to more than three. He might have been to like maybe. I know. I know. Allah went to three, and that was Allah's last. So if he he might have went the one before Allah. I was so whatever the number is. That's not the point. The point is this. So Allah's telling the story about being in that game, and. He said, people don't remember, they were actually only down 10 at the half. It felt like they were down 50, but they were down 10 at the half. And, you know, they Bobby Hurley was a freshman point guard and just wasn't equipped. I, th- I think he said Bobby, and again, he's working off of memory from long ago, but he said the way he remembers it, Bobby had seven turnovers in the first 11 minutes of the game. And But this is what I found most interesting and sort of a glimpse into the mind of, of Krzyzewski. He pulled Allah and the other seniors with 10 minutes to go. Took them out of the game. And and Allah was like, because he didn't want us to have to, he didn't want that to, he didn't want us to have to go through that. It was over for us, and he didn't want us on the court being embarrassed like that. Like, we're in enough highlights already. Allah was like, I've seen myself on TV today more than I've seen myself in a long time. He said, uh, but Kay didn't want us to have to go through with that. He said, but Bobby and Christian? He left them on the court the entire time. He wanted it to sting. He wanted it to never, you get, no, get dunked on again. No, turn it over again. Hurt, hurt, cry, cry, hurt. And he and he said, and, and he was trying to put them through something that hopefully they'd come out uh, stronger. And I thought that was an, an interesting uh, point from Allah, like being inside that lock, in that side, that program. Kay pulled the seniors because he didn't want them to be embarrassed any more than they already were. And, but he left the other guys, Bobby, Christian, all those guys. And, and then they come back, of course, and they win the national championship the next year. The other thing I wanted to touch on before we move on, and we are about to move on. Um, you mentioned John Calipari as I, I talked to, you know, as like the modern day talk. And, and that is the comparison a lot of people make. And I think it's it's fair on a lot of levels in the sense that uh, they're both 
um, guys who have had programs endured issues. I don't want to say operated outside of the lines of the rules because Cal would uh, reject that, even though he's had two Final Fours vacated. Um, so I'll just say they, he's had two Final Fours vacated. He's had issues with the NCAA, and he's also you know recruited at a high level, enrolled guys with some questionable backgrounds, although he does it much less at Kentucky it, it, than he ever did at, say, Memphis or UMass, certainly at Memphis. Um, but, uh, and I talked to Tark for a long time about Cal. Like, he loved John Calipari. He loved the idea of John Calipari. I think the main difference between Tark and Cal, though, is that Cal has never wanted to be the outsider. He, he Cal, one of the, the really, um, the real desires of John forever, honestly, was to get on and these, these, this is his phrase to me once upon a time, to get on the right side of the rope, um, to get on the right side of the rope. And he had always been on the wrong side. Like he's at UMass winning at a high level. So he's the devil. He's at Memphis winning at the high level. So he's a cheater. But, but what do you say about the guy at Kentucky? Like, can you ever get a job, you know, a blue, blue a Kansas job, a Kentucky job, a UCLA job, an Indiana job. And John always, always, I don't care what he says, always had a desire to be viewed differently or, or to be viewed in a, in a way uh, other than that's the modern day Jerry Tarkanian. So Tark, I don't think really had much of a desire why I was coaching to be anything other than I'll be the thorn in the NCAA. I'll be the renegade guy. I'll recruit the kids straight out of jail. I don't care. Whereas Cal has done a lot of those things, not necessarily out of jail, but certainly out of, um, juvenile. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll do a lot of those things, but he never wanted, I don't think he really embraced, I don't think he's ever embraced being the so-called renegade the way Tark embraced it. John always wanted to be uh, the coach at some place like the University of Kentucky. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And uh, man, the more you talk about it, I, I think that is right, but I, I do think they've got a lot in common as oh, sure. well. Um, particularly, <clears throat> I think they because they were both primarily early on known as only recruiters and not good coaches and both have really yes. dismissed that um and both sought the approval of their colleagues um and both have received that but yes in terms of uh, within um the coaching ranks how they you know wanted to be perceived i think there is a difference there and um you know the, i think the things we're saying about tark some of them, to a degree, will be echoed, you know, decades down the road uh, with Cal Perry. No question. And you're exactly right about the perceptions in terms of, oh, he's just a great recruiter, not a good coach. Oh, you know what? Probably a better coach than we've realized. That, that was certainly true for Tark. And I think now, though you'll still get a little pushback, I think now it is, it is almost universally accepted about John Cal Perry as well. Like, he's not just a recruiter. And anybody who suggests that is... Um, not paying close enough attention. Let's move on. Uh, so the the mock selection process is going on in Indianapolis right now, and whatever it's like, I, I, I you know, I it feels like we've done it for ten years. I, I hope David Warlock is somehow listening to this podcast over the weekend. The yeah. NCAA communication advisor. No, uh, mock process is going on, and whatever. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just like um, I see it all over Twitter, and like yeah, it's like. Yeah, I I, I'm a little over it at this point, although it is a great exercise and, um, and the NCAA is, is, is kind and smart to do it. That should, that should keep Warlock happy, right? Uh, so, um, but I did find this interesting. So they went through it the way that you would go through it. And last night, um, they set the number one seeds and the number one seeds were Kentucky, Virginia, Duke, Wisconsin, no Gonzaga. Sam, you agree with that? Um, 
I don't have a problem with it, I would say. I, I think I that's exactly I, my response. I don't agree, but I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, that, that's basically where I'm at. Um, I, I think that we're kind of rewarding Wisconsin for losing without Frank Kaminsky in a way. Like, that loss to Rutgers is a really, really bad loss. Rutgers that has, is not like, won, has not won since that game, by the way. Right. Yeah, like that is an incredibly bad loss. There's no circumstance where you should lose that game without Frank Kaminsky and a half of Trey Jackson. Like they, they have better wins, but Gonzaga's beaten a really they destroyed a really, really good SMU team. They beat Georgia by like what fifteen or so. They beat St. John's by like ten. They beat UCLA by like fifteen. Beat they went into BYU and won, which St. Mary's learned last night isn't easy. Um so yeah, like they, they beat like they, they beat um they beat SMU. Disaster. Did you say SMU? Yeah, they beat SMU by like fifteen, didn't right. they? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Helped. That was early. Yeah. So, like, this is clearly, a like, a number one level team, in my opinion. Like, it's not like they didn't go out and schedule non-conference. Like, they tried to put Memphis on their schedule, and Memphis is just terrible. Right. Like, there, there's nothing they can really do about that. They went into UCLA, and I think they're the only team to beat UCLA at Poly this year. Like, their resume is pretty good, I think. And I think that we're – I don't know that we're rewarding – Wisconsin for losing at Rutgers, but I think that we're just ignoring it in a yes. way that we shouldn't. That is exactly what's happening. It's basically Frank didn't play. I don't even think you can say Trayvon got hurt because Trayvon is hurt. So like whatever. But yeah. but, but certainly it is Frank didn't play. So who cares? And I actually kind of like I can get down with that as well. Like Frank didn't play, so who cares? I I can get down with that. I just here's my struggle with this, and it is is genuine. Like I don't have to see the tournament, so whatever. But. Um, on one hand, if we talk about quality of resumes, I think by the end of this, um, first off, here's what I think. By the end of this, I think Duke's going to take some losses uh, and and they're going to fall off that line. And so I think by the end of this, we're going to have Kentucky, Virginia, Wisconsin, and Gonzaga. So I think Virginia and Duke will knock each other. And I think it'll be Virginia knocking Duke, but I think they'll knock each other out, whether it's because um, Duke takes some losses or one of them beats the other one in the ACC tournament. But I think that'll sort itself out. So I, I do believe Gonzaga is going to be there at the end because I don't think Gonzaga's losing again. I don't think Virginia's going to lose enough and I don't think Kentucky's losing at all. Um, but right now, which is what they were basing this on, on one hand I go, you're telling me a, a team that is so clearly good according to the eye test, the, the statistical analysis, and the resume – only features an overtime loss at Arizona that might not should have been a loss if an official would have called a foul that was so clearly a foul at the end of regulation. Yep. Um, you're telling me that team doesn't deserve a one seed? Get out of here. Yeah. On the here's other, the other. On the other hand, like here, here, and then and then and then jump in. On the other hand, they've only got three top fifty wins. Basically, everybody in contention for a one's got twice as many. On the other hand, that's that's got everything to do with the league affiliation and nothing to do with the quality of the basketball team. So where do you go with this? See, yeah, I was actually going to go the other way on this, too, because their league right now is like a clear seventh out of uh, the what? What are there? They're like 30 leagues. Sure. Um, they're, they're like clearly seventh. They're ahead of the Atlantic 10. They're ahead of the Missouri Valley. They're ahead of the Mountain West. They're ahead of the AAC. Like this isn't a bad league this year. It's a clear step down from your power six leagues. But like the West Coast Conference is not a terrible league. Pepperdine's a tough place to play. Um, Portland's pretty good. You have, uh, you have uh, who's the, there's another team, San Diego's decent. Plus you got SM, or, uh, SMC and BYU that are both like pretty, pretty strong programs who should be in it for an at-large at some point if they keep winning. So I, I don't really 
buy even the conference argument in a lot of ways because there are a lot more landmines this year than there have been in the past for Gonzaga and they're dodging them all like yeah. with relative ease. Yeah, yeah they're they're beating they're beating the hell out of it. Like last night they were up like twenty to nothing. They were, I know. Um, and yeah, and the one thing, um, I think the one with all this mock stuff, and you know, diehard fans follow college basketball writers, so it's a very tiny percentage of fans that are even aware of this kind of stuff. But the ones that do, I think the the thing they still don't quite connect, and and you really have to go through the process, I guess, to fully understand that this is this is true, is the conference you're in and that conference's strength really don't play into how you're seated because you don't look at the teams and the resumes in that kind of window and through that perspective. So it's more the opponents that you've played that factors in more. So the fact that the WCC is either the seventh conference definitively overall or is perceived as a weak conference, those things can kind of be independent to how people assess Gonzaga. Um, I am so intrigued with Gonzaga just... They should be a one seed. I think they will be a one seed. And then what are they going to do when they get there? Obviously, we'll we'll address that as we get closer to the tournament. But there are a few teams that I'm more intrigued with overall than Mark Fuse. And I'm also going to be interested to see if Wichita State and you and I basically win out except losing against each other and whatever kind of combination that is. If those two teams don't lose another game the rest of the season except if, if it's to one another – how they are seeded because I think they're both really good teams worthy of six seeds or better. And I think that that could happen. Uh, but we'll wait and see. I'm just, you know, last year, the Valley, obviously, Wichita State runs the table. Parrish and I were in agreement. They should have been a one seed and they were, and they just got a brutal, brutal matchup in the second round with Kentucky this year, obviously hasn't run the table, but they could be a, a two or a three loss team when they get there. Is that going to be, Seven seed territory. I don't know. Uh, I'm very intrigued to see what the committee does with both those teams. Any, I think both of them should be six or better seeds. And I do th- as long as they only lose to each other going forward. They play on the 28th in Wichita, and then presumably would meet again in St. Louis in the NBC tournament. Um, I actually might go to Wichita for that. You know, it's the week yeah. before the most schools, the power schools, have a regular season finale. And like, what's better than you know two top 20 teams deciding a league championship? You know, you know, in in Coker, like, what's better than that? That that I, I might actually, it, it could be Ron Baker's last game at Wichita State. Right. I'm not trying to put a panic button or anything, but it, like, it could theoretically be Greg Marshall's last game in that arena. Um, so, I mean, if he wants it to be, it certainly will be. I mean, he could leave whenever he wants. And so, I don't know. I was thinking about going there. I'm really, I'm really intrigued by Wichita having a true challenger this season. And uh, because I, I think that Northern Iowa team's good. Seth Tuttle could end up being the MVC player of the year, even if Baker and Van Vliet mm-hmm. are both awesome. So, like, I, I don't know. I'm just sort of intrigued by all that. Let's uh, right. forget the February 28th weekend. We can look at that one on February 27th. Let's look at this weekend. I, I think the most interesting game uh, on some level is Villanova at Butler. It's on CBS Sports Network, um, 6 o'clock Eastern on Saturday uh, night. And so it's for first place in the Big East. I actually... Right before we started recording this, I was uh, on the phone with Chris Holtman and the Butler coach. Think about this. In a span of five months, he's gone from being an assistant coach at Butler to being the full-time head coach of a nationally ranked team at Butler that is about to play the, quote, biggest game in the history of Hinkle Fieldhouse, according to the Indianapolis Star. How wild is that? Uh, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, listen, <laughs> Holt, and I, I went to Butler last week, caught a game. 
um, Holtman is handling this uh, pretty terrifically. Um, that's that's even crazy to think about, and, and that this could be the biggest game for Butler ever in that building. Um, no, they're not even saying that. I mean, they're throwing Milan in there. This is the, the big, yeah. And I don't. First, let me be clear. I have no idea. Who am I yeah, to yeah, argue about what's but, what's the big? I'm just saying the Indianapolis Star called it that. So let's start from there. And and you know, if if Butler wins that game, I don't know if they're going to. I really like Villanova. Um, but if they do, uh, they're going to be tied for first in that league. Really, they're going to make the tournament anyway. But that's like if you win it, you're a lock. Like if they could lose every other game pretty much and still make the tournament, I feel. Um, it is uh, really Butler's becoming, in a weird way, um, one of the darling stories. Like you didn't ever think that could be possible again because Butler was Butler under Brad and they were just an established program. But with what the program's gone through since Brad left, um, it's definitely become something of an underdog again. And for Holtman to have done this has been pretty impressive overall. But I do think Villanova's going to win. I actually, I, I, I'm pretty high on Villanova overall. If they get the right kind of seed draw in the tournament, I could see myself picking them to reach the Final Four. I think they'll win at Butler. But if not, um, that's really going to you know, vault the Bulldogs' overall profile and, and Holtman as well. Yeah, I think because it's being played in Hinkle, it's basically a coin flip game. And and if you remember the Butler-Gonzaga game um, at Hinkle a few years back, like that was pretty big too. There's a yeah. floater at the buzzer. There's Brad mm-hmm. calmly walking to center court to, to shake hands with Mark Yeah, Hughes. that's so – that's a great call. I forgot yeah. about – like it happens and he is just strutting. Oh, I like, love that. I love that scene. It was great because I, I, for folks who don't remember, like Google it. It's terrific. Um, so the ball is in the air. Like the, the was it Rose? I want to say it's Roosevelt Jones. Was it? Uh, I, I might be making that, that up. Right. No, I me. think you're right. I think it's Rosie. He hits like this weird floater. Okay. So yeah. So the ball is in the air and it hasn't gone. It's like, we, it, it, it's on the way. It's either going in or it's not going in and who knows. And Brad, you, if you watch the sideline and take your eyes off the ball, Brad is walk like, like you do at the buzzer, walk to half court to shake the hand of the opposing coach. He's walking already. And yeah. He, and he just so calmly and like he's already on his way. And this got a lot of attention because it's like, dude, the ball is in the air and like the whole place is getting ready to go crazy. And Brad Stevens is just walking to to um, to shake Mark Few's hands. And I remember talking to Brad about this and he was great. I mean, it, it's sort of a glimpse into the mind of, of Brad. He said, at that point, the ball's in the air. I've done I've done my job. You know, everything I could possibly do had been done. And to me... It doesn't matter whether that ball goes in or not because we put ourselves in a position to win. We have an opportunity to win. Now it's just up to the ball. Like the ball goes in, it doesn't go in. And I'm not going to feel much differently uh, about the job that I did or about the job my kids did based on whether that ball goes in or not. So it's over for me. I'm going to shake hands. And then, of course, it goes in and everybody goes berserk and whatever. But I just thought that was an, a really interesting observation that uh, from Brad, like uh, – I, I don't well, I can watch it and then like um, you know grab my head and 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 cry if it doesn't go in or jump up and down if it does go in, but whether it does go in or doesn't go in has nothing to do with whether or not I did my job tonight. Like my kids did their jobs, we I did my job, so let's go um, let's go ahead and start the walk to midcourt. I I yeah. love I love that scene. One of my favorite scenes in college basketball the past few years. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that it, I don't know if he had brought this up or if you didn't ask it in the course of that conversation but 
it's almost like once you've seen what happened with Gordon Hayward, like <laughs> yeah. it's it's just like you know if it goes and it goes and if it doesn't it doesn't. But like once you've been standing watching and seeing seeing that ball hang in the air and come so close to falling in and really just changing the landscape of college basketball, um, you know a shot by Roosevelt Jones and Hinkle Fieldhouse is is certainly a, a huge one, but nothing by comparison. So. <laughs> I wonder if, if that is backdrop in his mind. All right. The other thing, I, so I was talking to Holtman this morning, and um, I'm going to write all this later on this afternoon. Um, I, I thought this was interesting. You know, he, he's a pretty interesting guy. I've got to know a little bit over the past, I don't know, five months or so. And, um, you know, he fell into this job for circumstances. For people who don't know the story, Brandon Miller was the head coach. Uh, Chris was just his assistant. Uh, Brandon had to take a leave. Um, and then Chris got the job uh, as an interim basis, which basically is code for, let's see how you do, guy. And if it goes well, then maybe you'll get the job. And if it doesn't, well, then maybe you'll be looking for a you know a new employment in March. Because then, you know, Butler could just announce it. If this season went the way it was supposed to go, like eighth in the Big East, then, uh, then, then the, you know, Butler could theoretically, probably would, just announce that um, you know now they're going to have a national search for a new coach, and and we appreciate Chris for his uh, um, uh, work over the past few months. And so one of the things he said, which I thought was a very human moment, instead of being all basketball coachy and whatever, he said, you know what? Like I felt an immense amount of pressure, and and not just because I'm the suddenly the head coach at Butler. Like usually you become the head coach at Butler or something like Butler. That happens in March or April. You got several months to sort of get comfortable and understand wear the shirts and speak to the booster clubs and and then you then you then the season starts and whatever. Like I became the coach at Butler and now the season's starting. And it, so you have pressure that hasn't really made sense to you yet already. Like it's inherent. He said, but the other thing I could never get out of my head. He said, um you know, I've got an, one assistant coach who's got two kids and a third on the way. I've got another assistant coach who's got three children. I've got another assistant coach that whatever. And I could never get out of my head, if I screw this up, all of them are looking for jobs at the end of this. It's not just me. Like, at least my life's in my own hands to some degree. But my, I've, had, I've, got, I've suddenly, it's not like coaching for four years at a school and then you're on the hot seat. Because you've had four years to get yourself away from that moment. Basically, hey, here's the job. Now do great now, or or do really well now. Impress us now, or else you won't have this job four months from now. And if you don't have this job four months from now, none of these other guys have this job four months from now. And did you remember that your assistant coach has a baby on the way? And he was like, that just overwhelmed me at times. Like I, you know, it was just a lot to carry. And so, certainly not feeling a sense of relief now. He's fired up and excited and nervous and all the things you would be about tomorrow's game against Villanova. But to get the interim tag removed and get a multi-year contract where you know no matter what happens tomorrow, um, you're not interviewing for the job anymore right now. You're going to be the coach at Butler next year no matter what um, is a huge accomplishment for him. And I thought it was interesting for him to to, to talk about that, like not knowing uh, early and having other people's lives and careers in your hands was a really uh, stressful thing for him. And I, I guess on a completely human level, uh, that, that makes sense to any of us, right? Oh, without a doubt. Um, I mean, it's, I think, an under, and it's an overlooked part of the job for a lot of guys um, because, let's face it, that's not what we're paid to write about. It's not what we're paid to consider a lot of times, but it is a, a, a real 
uh, continual heavy aspect of the job for anyone that takes a head coaching job. Chris's is, is is so very different from most other situations sure. for all the reasons that you that you listed. But but sure, the uh, the pressure to to do well, um, to help men who are your friends and whose wives and children you get to know and see on a nearly daily basis uh, is certainly a very heavy part of it. And you know, I'm, I'm glad you're right. I'm glad you're writing this GP because. Um, one, the Holtman story should be written, but two, especially if Butler wins and if Butler winds up going to the Big East tournament, makes the title game and gets a five seed or whatever, the Holtman story is really going to be part of the College Troops news cycle, writing cycle, oh, maybe to the point of saturation by the end of March. So I'm glad that this is getting kind of told a few weeks ahead of time because he's also, he's just, he's a he's a good guy. I think he's a get it guy. Um, I mean, I, I sat with him in his office and... I was kind of self-deprecating, saying, "Yeah, this is kind of awkward. I picked you guys eighth. and he's like, "And you should have." Right? Like, he kind of just gets like he no. wasn't like giving me any sort of flack. He's like, uh, "You know, if I was a member of the media, I would have thought we'd have been about eighth or, as well." Like he admits that the way that the team has played has been really surprising. Uh, there's just a lot of very interesting angles to Chris Holtman, that program, how he landed here, and the way that he really embraces the fact that. His story is going to want to be told, and he does it in a very uh, responsible way because the fact of the matter is um, the circumstances which Brandon Miller left that program remain mysterious, and um, he is very, very uh, respectfully private of, of Brandon, his situation, and he kind of just leaves that outside um, in a way that I think a lot of coaches might mishandle. He's done a good job with that. Really good job. And like, uh, just to bottom line it uh, with uh, Butler, how many other Big East schools would you, how many Big East schools would you trade rosters with Butler? Maybe Marquette? Maybe? Yeah. Maybe Creighton? But like, it, it maybe not though. At least like Marquette, you get Carlino, you get Juwan Johnson, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, he's done a terrific job. The idea that, um, you know, by the time we go to bed on Saturday night, Butler could be tied for first in the Big East. First off, Butler tied for first in the Big East, period. Butler, which was in the Horizon League a couple years ago, tied for first in the Big East. Crazy. Uh, for Butler, with a guy who was an assistant coach five months ago, tied <laughs> for first in the Big East uh, after being in the Horizon just a few years. It's all uh, bananas and a terrific. So I'm actually looking forward to, uh, to to sitting down and writing it this afternoon, even if... Um, I've got a million other things to do. Uh, speaking of, we got to get out of here. But first, Sam, I uh, last week on this podcast, you had Notre Dame over Duke. So do you want to pick a big game tomorrow? Yeah, no, I should probably stay away from that at this point. Um, <laughs> no, no, you no, <laughs> Sam, you're picking a game. You, yeah. Last week you had Notre Dame over Duke and then Duke won by seven. Thirty five. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. please, so, please give us a pick uh, for tomorrow. You uh, And it's got to be a high profile game. You want Baylor, Kansas. Oh. Or do you want West Ohio Virginia, State, Iowa State, State, Ohio State, Michigan State? Pick any of them, Sam. Give us a winner. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Ohio State beats Michigan State. Oh, my yeah. God. I didn't say uh, uh, I didn't say Buckeye, Buckeye Sam pick it. <laughs> yeah. you just, you just I just don't think Michigan State's very good. It's more that. But I think that Ohio State's pretty good. I think they're starting to get hot. And I think that Michigan State – kind of like i said isn't very good they're gonna go into the <laughs> Breslin center and win sam Carter. so now expect michigan state to go in and 
win by 15. The same least. way Sam had Notre Dame exactly. going into Cameron Indoor last weekend to win. Den- Denzel Valentine's going to shut down <laughs> Angela Russell, and everything's going to be totally wrong again. All, All right. right. If you uh, make or miss, we will talk about it again uh, next week. Let's get <laughs> out of here. Remember, you can subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. Make sure to do that. Quickest way to get your hands on the latest uh, editions. And uh, regardless, we're going to be back Monday. Uh, till then, take care.